Welcome to Couch Time. I am your host, Susie, a licensed marriage and family therapist, joined by my co-host, Janet, licensed clinical social worker. Thank you for joining our show where we dive into topics like mental health and relationship wellness, along with sharing our experiences and lessons learned on our road to licensure and building a private practice. You can connect with us at roadtowellness.co and susiehologian.com, where you can also find show notes for this episode. So why don't you start by telling us a little bit about yourself, Lindsay, and who you are, what you do, your credentials. Feel free to just throw whatever you want in there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, I'm a social worker. I'm an LCSW and I was recently licensed actually, which is very exciting. You know, I've wanted to be a social worker for a very long time. So I think seeing my dream come to fruition this last year has been a really exciting thing. And I'm currently working at a nonprofit called St. Joseph Center. And I've been working with the homeless population for around five years. And this year, hoping to jump into private practice setting to start my own private practice. And I'm so excited about it. One of the bonuses of being licensed is that it allows you to do that. So that's kind of where I'm at right now. We've had a big year of changes. Yes. Haven't we all this year? True, <laughs> um, true. Definitely. I think one of the neat things about licensure as an LMFT or LCSW or whatever type of license you're getting in this field is it just really does open up a lot of different doors that that's probably been one of the most exciting parts for me personally this year. And where do you practice Lindsay? My practice will be Lindsay Wright and therapy. My website is in progress, but I do have an Instagram handle. It's at Lindsay Wrighton and it's R E I T E N. So you can find more information about that there. Awesome. So why don't we start with some icebreaker questions, not necessarily related to the to being a social worker. Let's start with that. Since last year was such a weird, crazy, challenging year, did you pick up any quarantine activities? Oh, yes. (laughs) Um, My husband and I have become obsessed with Rummy Cube, which is like the game Rummy in card form, but we just play it in the cubes. And it has become a very real obsession. I think I have three Remy Cube games in my house at this point. And at all family gatherings we go to at night when we don't want to watch TV or really do anything else, we've started playing Remy Cube, which has become a really fun tradition. I think a lot of people got into like the sourdough bread, banana, banana bread. <laughs> yes, I didn't make bread. But I definitely had the banana bread phase for a while. Mm -hmm. And I've loved baking for a long time, but that was definitely in the quarantine (laughs) phase of this last year. Rummy Cube was like a way to connect with my husband and just a lower sensory activity. That was really great. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. Love it. Next question. If you could travel anywhere in the world now, where would you go? Oh, we all dream of this now. (laughs) Yeah, I'm like, man. (laughs) What a dream. You know, I've been wanting to go on a trip. This is such a like everyone answer, but my husband's never been to Italy and I've only been one time and I loved every minute and I really would love to go with him together to travel Europe in that way and go to Italy and Florence and go back to Rome. I've never been to Florence, but I have been to Rome and I just think it's such a beautiful 
beautiful place. And I would love, would love, love to get there. <laughs> yes. We're I with will you. Follow along with you in your luggage to row. Yes. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Take me anywhere. Seriously, outside of the house is good. So Italy's a far reach, but I would love to have that happen in the next year. For sure. And last one, can you share with us if you've loved anything about working from home or some of the challenges that you found working from home? Yes. I feel like we've all probably experienced both sides of that point at some point this last year. And we were fortunate enough to move kind of toward the beginning of when quarantine happened in September, well, I guess a few months after. But prior to that, we were living in like a 730 square foot apartment working from home. And so that presented many challenges because my husband's a video editor and was often on calls. And so in such a small space, you know, it was just Hard to have your own time and making calls with confidentiality was hard. So we were fortunate to move and that has become a little better. I think I love the slower morning. I think it's really forced at least myself to slow down, to enjoy my coffee and not just gurgle it down really fast before I have stuff to do and get in some of those slower morning routines, which I've appreciated. And then I think the downside for me has just been just not being outside as much, you know, being cooped up inside is hard. Where I live, we don't have an outdoor area. So you really have to force yourself to like go on a walk and like breathe in the fresh air. And, you know, I love my husband, but seeing your partner 24 <laughs> seven, I'm sure we can all relate to this in some way. It's just good to have a long time. Sometimes I'm an introvert. So I definitely missed just having somewhere independence in that way. There's been good and there's been hard. Those yeah. are great points. I yeah. also find that having slower mornings really helps me have a better day. Absolutely. You know, I feel like I'm more productive, but at the end of the day, I also feel like I follow a healthier like sleep schedule as opposed to days where I'm just rushing throughout the whole day. And then I stay up until 1am doing, you know, nothing productive. Exactly. Yeah. I definitely empathize with that. Yeah. Having slow mornings is it's just so nice. We're in such a culture of constant rushing and getting from point A to point B and never having time to just like be in the morning. Mm -hmm. And I think for some of us, not all of us, but quarantine has really allowed us time to be with ourselves or be with our partner or our kids or whoever it is and not always just be rushing to the next thing, which I think in this culture particularly is a huge catalyst to just who we are in general. Very much appreciated that part of the pandemic, which yeah. So Lindsay, why don't you tell us a little bit more about your journey to becoming a social worker and clinician? Like what really brought you to the field? You have such a unique background and such a unique experience. I think something I learned when I went to grad school in my interview, actually, and I'll never forget it. So often people come into this field because of a trauma or a life experience that was difficult or just seeing a lot of difficulties in their life in some way or another, whether that's where they were raised or in their immediate family or through friends or whatever it was. And I actually didn't have that experience. And I used to think, I used to kind of shame myself, like, oh, I just feel bad that that's not my story. And then I think when I graduated from graduate school, I realized like, own your story. This is why you're here. And I actually came from a really wonderful home and 
we were always very like others oriented just in regards to like the homelessness community, which is partly why I'm where I am now and just trying to help others. And so truly that's like why I entered the field. My parents have always just taught me kind of those values and in my head as a young adult, I just was always like, how can I do this in a professional way that's still skilled? You know, that's not just like volunteering. And so that was like social work. And I remember going into social work, I was like, do I want to be an LMFT or do I want to be a LCSW? And it was this huge decision and ultimately decided for the social work route because I had a really huge, huge passion to work with the homeless population. And that particular education just... I think lines with some of the values of working with the homelessness community. And so I went to Cal State Fullerton, did a two-year program, loved it, realized that my passion for working with the homeless was still there after my internships, which were not working with the homeless. Yeah, walked into, I've worked in two nonprofits since graduating and I just have a really big passion for that community because I think they're a very misunderstood and misrepresented community. And so I just felt very convicted of working with people one-on-one and then also just providing psychoeducation in the ways that I can in the different systems I've worked with. And it's been such a joy every year. There's definitely really hard things about it. And I'm definitely in a place of wanting to transition out at this point. But I think all the years I've worked in it have helped me in so many ways and will just make me a better therapist in private practice. So I'm extremely grateful for my years there. Yeah, just loved it. Very grateful. I would also add that I think like as, you know, the therapy community, I'm very thankful that advocates like yourself have made it their work's mission to be able to demystify those misconceptions and misrepresentations of the community. And I think that's so important. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's been it's funny. I think in this journey of becoming a social worker, so many people have said to me, and I'm sure you guys have experienced this in some way, but oh, thank you so much for doing that. And I could never do what you do. And I think there's a part of me that's like, of course, everyone's gifted in their own areas. And in the same way, I wouldn't I couldn't work with in DCFS because I just the children tear me apart. The homeless people are in my community, but I think so much of it is being willing to like put yourself out there and learn and put yourself in other people's shoes. And of course, our licenses require skill and a lot of work that we put into becoming who we are. That's just a big part of it too. Yeah. But thank you for saying that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I also wanted to point out Jen and I talk about breaking therapy stereotypes a lot. Mm -hmm. And before it, you mentioned, you know, the shame around going into the field, not having the quote unquote typical experience that other people enter the field into. And I think that's also a really big thing to, to break down because I think there is a lot of shame around people who enter and don't find that confidence or might feel that imposter syndrome that we talk about because they don't have what seems like a typical journey to being a licensed therapist. Oh yeah. I think, you know, the first year in my graduate school program, most of my friends or new friends were in the field for that reason. And, you know, you put the shame on yourself. I never experienced that from other people. Very rarely, at least. I think some people maybe questioned like why I was here because they thought I didn't have a appropriate understanding of hardship and what that looks like but yeah I mean you come to realize like I'm here 
I'm here for the same reason as you. I want to help people. I want to walk with people on their healing. And I want to just provide psychoeducation around misconceptions around mental health and homelessness or whatever it is you're passionate about. And I'm like proud to own that that's my story at this point, not having done that before. So I hear you be proud and own your story. Yes. Amen. You said something very interesting. You said, you know, there's a lot of misconceptions around you know, the population that you work with, the homeless population, is there something that you would want to share with a lot of our listeners about some of the, maybe the misconceptions around the work that you do and the people you work with? Yes. I mean, anytime there's room for that. A lot of people assume that everyone who experiences homelessness is a drug addict or has alcohol issues or, and that's why they entered into homelessness. And, you know, in my years working in LA specifically is the demographic I can speak to. That's really not the case. A lot of people maybe start using because they've been homeless for a long time and they witness so much on the streets and there's a lot of trauma there that that's the way they cope with their own experience. And then also sometimes people are just a paycheck away. They're like you and me and they lost their job or they had to, you know, there's so many stories about people helping their parents and their loved ones who are near the end of life and they just go bankrupt and they can no longer support themselves because they've been supporting their parents or, you know, there's just so many other stories as to why people become homeless. And, you know, of course, often we don't take the opportunity to get to know everyone's story and that's not possible for everyone and that's not everyone's calling. But I do think it's important to spread awareness around the idea that not everyone is just using and falls into homelessness. That's just not the reality. And I think maybe one other thing I always like to comment on is the idea that, at least in Los Angeles, there's a very loud cultural voice of, well, people don't want help and people don't want to be housed. And there is, of course, a small percentage of those people, just like there's a small percentage of people who do use and that's how they fall into homelessness. That is the reality. But most people want a toilet and want a shower and want basic necessities so that they can live a more fulfilling life in whatever way that is to them. And so I think often people who assume, oh, they don't want help. You know, that just doesn't allow for like redemption or any type of grace or pursuit of these people if that's your automatic default. Most people do want that. And I think people deserve to have the opportunity and the chance to have those things. And that's part of the reason that I'm in this field because who am I to say that you don't deserve those things that I have? And we all come from different backgrounds, some harder than others. And there's different reasons why we enter into things. And so... I just feel it's really important to advocate for that and to be a voice for the voiceless, which I feel like people say that a lot, but truly there's communities in our country and in Los Angeles in particular that are overseen. And it's really like a privilege to help these individuals and just walk alongside them into getting their needs met, whether it's basic or home or water, whatever it is. I think it's important, very valuable work. I love that. I'm really hearing the the empathy behind your voice when you're talking about the population and their needs. Yes. Yeah. I feel like sometimes I get very emotional talking about the homeless community because I feel so passionate about who they are and what they've taught me. And if one ounce of anything I'm sharing affects someone else in a positive way, then it's worth it. 
Awesome. Love that. And I've known you for a little while, Lindsay and, and Susie the same. And, you know, we've each had our own individual experiences towards becoming licensed. Mm-hmm. And so I'm curious also, you know, having the unique experiences that you've had and, and your journey to licensure, I wonder if you can share a little bit about that and, and what that process was like for you, because there's, there's so many facets behind it. And, and like we just said, each person's story we need to own and each person's story is so unique. Can you talk a little bit more about that for yourself? Yeah, I would love to. So like I said before, I did go to Cal State Fullerton and I had to get loans out, which I think is part of my story and an important part because some of us have to do that. And that's just a part of doing what we want to do. I felt very called to be a social worker and so I was willing to do that. But I had a two-year program. Honestly, I didn't really love my internships, which I think is also part of a lot of social workers' experience just coming into the field. And unfortunately, internships can sometimes dictate your trajectory, I think, as a social worker, depending on where you want to work. And so left my graduate school, but felt that I didn't necessarily get some of the clinical experience that I was looking for. I was thankful to know that I always had wanted to at least start working with the homeless population. So went into a nonprofit there. You know, I think the realities of this work are, they're just challenging. There's, I think something I've learned, at least in this particular nonprofit is you really just need to advocate for yourself as a social worker. And whether that means having intentional supervision, making sure all your hours are counted, having appropriate boundaries and advocating for yourself in that way. I think that's a big lesson I learned. And my first year in (laughs) an NGO was realizing that my own boundaries were just not present at all with clients and in what I was doing. And, you know, I think that's a lesson you learn quickly on how to maintain your own boundaries with clients and who you work with. There's been, you know, I think a lot of challenges and trying to get my hours. I think sometimes people, if you choose to go the licensure route, there's a lot of hardships that can happen there. And I think one of the biggest mistakes I made, and hopefully for anyone who's listening, who is an associate on this path, one of my very first supervisors who I loved, we hadn't discussed what my hours would kind of look like because I had a very flexible job and did a lot of non-traditional therapy with clients. And so I ended up getting a very minimal amount of hours for a year and didn't know that walking into this particular role. And so it took me, you know, almost a year longer to get certain hours that could have been prevented had I had a conversation around what I was doing and just what that looked like. And so I just encourage all associates to have very transparent conversations with their supervisors around your hours and what you're doing and why these can be clinical hours, et cetera. Sometimes that takes advocacy. But yeah, I think you girls both know one of my hardest things about, I think, or one of the biggest obstacles in becoming licensed was I actually didn't pass my first clinical exam and missed it by one point. Shout out to both of you because you guys were just wonderful humans and friends in that season. 
But yeah, that's hard. You know, you work, how long is it for me? Seven, six, seven years to get to this one point. If you choose the Mm -hmm. licensure route to take this clinical exam and everything culminates to this one, you know, four hour time period. And so when when I didn't pass, I was just like beyond devastated and disappointed. And I think that's been my biggest hurdle in feeling like, am I good enough? You know, fear creeps in and you start asking yourself these questions. Um, should I do this? Am I enough? Do I have the skills? Should I look into another career? Was I made to do this? You know, all these things that you maybe weren't asking yourself before, or maybe weren't as loud to you before this like negative inner voice becomes very loud. Took it again, passed it. Thankfully, that's kind of brought me to where I am now. The journey to licensure is not for the faint of heart. It takes many years. It takes, you know, you sacrificing maybe time with your family or friends or sacrificing events or whatever it is to focus on what you're doing. It takes being extremely mindful of where you choose to work and get your hours and have supervision. I mean, there's a lot of factors that I think go into sustaining yourself also to get to that point, having self-care, making sure you have a community. I mean, all these things that I feel like are talked about often are really very, very important things to getting to that point. Absolutely. Lindsay, thank you for sharing that vulnerability because I don't think it's talked about enough. You know, and they're people when when they look at it from the outside, it looks like this, you know, happy go lucky experience. And of course, like it's difficult gaining hours, but outside people look at it and they're like, well, you just have to take an exam. Right. And like you said, years and years and years of work boil down to a single four hour exam. It feels weird and unfair in ways. Right. Yeah, it does. I think it's an extremely daunting experience to have when you've worked so hard. And especially if you're feeling so called to this work, to then have your efforts and your passions culminate to a point system. It's a very arbitrary way to mm-hmm. grade us, I guess, is what I would say. And of course, I think we all know who've taken the exam and even walking into it, those who haven't. The exam doesn't represent who we are or what we do or how we heal or how we walk along people through their own journey. But it certainly feels that way when you're studying and when you take the exam, whether you pass or not. It's just, I think you're very reminded that we have this arbitrary system of, are you good enough? And will you pass this exam? You know, and I think there's a very real emotional component of healing to get through that exam, whether you pass it or not, to know that your worth isn't in the exam, regardless of the score you receive. Your worth is in the work you did before and the work that will come after and who you are with the people you work with. Yes. I want everyone listening who is going to take the exam or has taken the exam to really hear those words because I couldn't have said it better myself. Yeah, I mean, we've all experienced this and I think have felt these feelings in some way or another and they are profound. They can be devastating. When you pass, of course, it's a joyous occasion, but I think it's really important to know that, to just be grounded in where your worth is coming from because so often in this field, there's so many hardships, difficult clients, bad supervisors, underpaid jobs, you know, whatever it is that comes our way. Talk about the journey not being easy, that I think it's really important to be grounded in your why and in your worth as you move through your own journey. Totally. I couldn't agree with you more. And again, also appreciate your vulnerability. I had your exact experience where I took the exam also and missed it by two points. 
Mm -hmm. And I have to say, like, I had to go to therapy after that Mm -hmm. because it was such, like you said, like ego is blown and your identity, at least for me, like I felt like my identity as a clinician was blown. Mm -hmm. And I had to go through this whole other strategy of how I was going to pick myself back up after that experience, you know, really, I'm glad we're talking about this because hopefully, and I think we're doing this, we're removing the shame Mm -hmm. of that experience because it's true. Sometimes it takes clinicians several tries to get through the clinical exam and come out the other side. Like you said, it doesn't define who we are. And I don't know if it even measures our ability to practice that exam. I think it just measures our ability to take an exam and pass it. Honestly. I completely agree. Yeah. I mean, standardized testing, I feel like, you know, in college and universities are not even being questioned because of that reason. Exactly. It's not proving a genius or a, am I good at this? You know, it's maybe just like a way to learn the test. And I think yeah. that the same for social work. And Deanna, I just want to say, I'm so appreciative of you talking about the need to go to therapy after, because, you know, people don't talk about that either. You know, when you fail any exam, but especially when you put years and years of your life to this one four hour thing, it's traumatic when you don't pass. Honestly, you know, we always talk about trauma and not everything goes back to trauma, but I think in this particular scenario, at least for me, definitely a trauma that goes to it. I remember going back to trying to study, you know, you can't register for exam until 90 days after, which all of your associates will learn. And that's assuming there's even a test that's available after that 90 day time. Um, And I was so triggered going back to studying. Like I literally had to walk away from my desk space. I was trying to rearrange the area I was in because I took it toward the beginning of the pandemic. And so the only place you could be was inside. And there was at least three different times I remember just like crying, like straight sobbing because I felt so overwhelmed with the fear of failure and shame and inadequacy. And will I pass? Like, will all these efforts culminate to another missed, failed test? And I wish I had gone to therapy, truly, because I think it would have been very helpful to process these feelings of doubt and identity and worthiness and all of these things that hopefully you were able to process. But I just really appreciate you sharing that because a lot of people don't talk about that experience. And it's a very vulnerable one, a very real one, and oftentimes a very necessary one that I know helped you pass the next time you took it. You know, I know that's your experience. Very grateful for you sharing that. Yeah. And honestly, in talking about this too, like theme that I'm feeling is just the story of resiliency. Like that's also a part of the story here as clinicians and our journeys to licensure, because it isn't that, you know, one straight track. Like you even talked about, Lindsay, just the challenges with figuring out the hours. And I know, you know, other colleagues that have had to take breaks sometimes because they're starting a family or other obstacles have come in the way. So there isn't like a one size fits all for everyone. So I'm really hearing just the the theme of resiliency and each of us creating our own path to getting to this place. Yes, exactly. I think, yeah, social workers are resilient. (laughs) Whether you get licensed or not, it's a journey. And there's a lot of obstacles we all experience, whether that's professionally or personally, that we walk along alongside in the same parallel time. So yeah, I hear that too. Very common theme in most of our experiences. 
And if you could share, Lindsay, we we just also recorded prior to this episode, how to survive grad school for clinicians that are interested in entering the field or if they're already in grad school. And it was nice to actually think back on, you know, what we did well or what we would do differently. Mm -hmm. So if you could give like a piece of advice to someone that's newly entering the field or they're thinking about going into the field, what would you share as as someone who's gone through the experiences that you have? Wow, yeah, what a great question. I wish I had had this conversation with someone when I went into grad school, because that would have been <laughs> life-changing. You know, I think something that I've realized and that stands true outside of this job and any job, but just investing in relationship, whether that's networking in your cohort, finding a mentor outside of your school who's in the field that you're looking to who's helping you you know just building your village grad school's hard personal life happens and i think having a network of people and a community of people to both challenge you and encourage you and lift you up and just be present with you really is a game changer grad school is difficult and so Um, And social work and the helping profession in whatever way you walk into it is extremely difficult. And I think it's just really important to have that, you know, something I wish that I had done is kind of reached out to a mentor or someone who wanted to do what I wanted to do, at least at the time, of course, things can change and interest change in grad school, but just to like walk alongside me and to challenge me to be better at my craft and to remind me of like who I am outside of social work and that even that doesn't define who I am. Like, yes, I am a social worker. That is also a part of who I am collectively, you know, as a human. So yeah, that would be my advice. Invest in relationships. Um, Often that takes vulnerability and time and that is okay. But if you can get to the point where you allow someone to see you and walk with you in your own journey, I can guarantee you, you will just have a better, at least more held experience as you walk toward that and graduate and become licensed. And for you guys, I'm grateful for you. You know, I didn't meet Janet. until after grad school. I wish that we had gone to grad school together, but I think I took that investing in relationships more seriously after I graduated. And because of that, I've met you too. And you guys will be lifelong friends, both personally and just on a professional level. And I'm so grateful for that. And, you know, I think the us three is just an example of like what investment can look like. And it's really quite a beautiful thing. I really like that because I mean, one, having both of you in my community is the most like both heartwarming, but also like comforting thing as a therapist in the field. And therapists talk about having that community and having that, you know, network of amazing people that you can rely on when you're in private practice a lot, because we often call it an isolating field. But Lindsay, I love what you did there. Why not start while you're in grad school? you're right. Like, I wish I would have had that in grad school. You know, I had my classmates who were amazing, who have also become lifelong friends, but it's different. Like if your community would expand beyond that, to feel that comfort, to, to feel like you said, being held right in that community, that would be an amazing tip for anyone who is in those beginning stages of this field. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I think also, I think just to say what you said, that just brought up a point. I think your community is important to have for people who understand the field so maybe have walked with that in some way. But I also think to your point, it's important to have community outside of that. You know, mm-hmm. so don't, I think it's easy in grad school to let 
those relationships fall by the wayside because you're so fixated on your degree and your internship and maybe you're working, you know, whatever it is that your experience is that sometimes that just is the last thing you're focused on. And, you know, I would encourage everyone who's going to grad school or thinking about it to not let that happen because those are the people who you need to help you walk through that both in the field and without because those are our anchors yeah they're just hugely important people (laughs) so yeah thank you for that I agree no thank you for that actually that's something that you know even I had forgotten I definitely fell out of touch with my community outside of the therapy world until I got licensed and I had the the capacity and the energy to be able to reconnect with them and it does make me wonder, you know, if I had found ways to to keep that balance while I was on my journey toward licensure, it might have been an easier journey. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that happened to me also. I remember to speak to challenges again, just going through this, a friend called me a lifelong friend who I call my sister, actually, and she had reached out and just said, you're not being a good friend. You're not there for me. And I said, you're right. I'm not. And you're not my priority in my schooling is. And I had to really think about that and be like, man, my schooling and my purpose is huge. But without these people who are my sister and my family and my friends, like I wouldn't be here. So I need to reprioritize what that's looking like to at least create a little bit more space for those important relationships. Yes. Yes, absolutely. I love that. And is there anything, Lindsay, that you're excited about in the field going forward in the future? I think sometimes we can get so fixated on the past and challenged by that, but is there anything that you're currently looking forward to or really excited about? Yes. I mean, I I feel like after all these years of putting in time, I'm in a place where I'm just excited to walk into private practice. And in no way am I, na- am I naive for those of you who are licensed <laughs> know how hard that is also. It's still a continued part of the journey. And, but I'm feeling just excited to walk into that and thankful for friends like you guys and others who have done this before me, who I can consult with and talk to and process with and cry with. And I think I'm really excited about that. I think right now in the last two years or so, mental health has just moved forward in a lot of different ways. We have a lot, a long way to go, as we know, but I think just the destigmatizing conversations around mental health and normalizing varied experiences in our community and talking about it and really trying to put shame to rest has really been a beneficial thing. And so I think also for that reason, I'm just excited to be a part of that culture. You know, it's a neat thing to be a part of someone's healing in general, but I think to have people just walk into your office and be vulnerable and know that maybe the past few years and destigmatizing that allowed them to come into your office is a really neat thing to witness. Very excited to just walk into Lindsay Wright in therapy. Well, Lindsay, that's a perfect segue into how we want to cap this off. And here on Couch Time Podcast, you know, Jenna and I like to call ourselves as like two therapists keeping it real. So what Mm -hmm. I want to ask you is, How do you keep it real as a modern therapist? I love that question. I think we talk about self-care a lot in this field, but truly paramount, I think, to staying well. And I think one of my favorite things that I do for myself to just center myself and come back to me is the beach. 
that's just one of my things. I make time for myself to do that. Again, I feel like I can't emphasize community enough, but keeping it real means keeping it real with my friends and my professional coworkers and talking about how hard it is and also, you know, the triumphs that you experience. So I think those are the two ways. And you know what? Sometimes that's happy hour. Let's be real. That's not real talk. Yes. <laughs> that is an Aperol spritz on a weekend, maybe by yourself. I don't really know, but it's there. So <laughs> I'll be yeah. there too. Don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> those would be my, my real talk things that I do to sustain myself. What a perfect response. Thank you. Love it. I can't wait. And actually, I know where you guys are, LA is opening up a little bit more. Not wait to have more outings like that together. Yeah. Yes. Not wait. I'm very excited for that. I think a lot of people are relieved to know that they can be with other people. Yeah. You know, and breathe a little more easily again. Have that be safe and feel quote unquote normal and yeah, just experience life a little bit more fully. Absolutely. Lindsay, thank you so, so, so much for giving us your time today. It was such an amazing conversation. Couldn't have thought of a better way to kick off our interview series. And before we wrap it off, we want to give you the space of, you know, that shameless promo. Tell us where our listeners can find you. I know you said you're in the process of starting your private practice. So let everyone know how they could find you, where they could reach out if they have any questions or want to connect with you on the things that we talked about today. Yeah. Well, first, just want to say thank you guys again for having me. This was so rewarding and so fun. And I am so elated for you guys to start this. And I know that it will impact so many licensed and pre-licensed people in so many ways. Grateful things were even just discussed in this 45 minutes. My shameless plug is, again, my handle's at Lindsay Wrighton, and it's R-E-I-T-E-N. And hopefully my website will be launched within the month. That's the goal. And that will be lindsaywrighton.com. So those will be the two places you can find me. Should be having a Psychology Today profile soon too, but in the works. So as for now, those are the, the two ways to find me. And always feel free to reach out or DM me. It's fun to talk about things. Of course, there's boundaries, but love to connect with people in that way as well. Thank you, Lindsay. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Feel free to connect with Susie and myself as well. I'm at Therapy with Janet B. And Susie, you're at Sessions with Susie. And if you have any other guests or any other topics you'd like for us to discuss, please feel free to share with us. We look forward to more of these interviewing series and can't wait to connect with you all soon. And always feel free to reach out or DM me. It's fun to talk about things. Of course, there's boundaries, but love to connect with people in that way as well. Thank you, Lindsay. Thank you. Thank you everyone for listening. Feel free to connect with Susie and myself as well. I'm at therapy with Janet B and Susie, you're at sessions with Susie. And if you have any other guests or any other topics you'd like for us to discuss, please feel free to share with us. We look forward to more of these interviewing series and can't wait to connect with you all soon. Thank you for joining us today on Couch Time. You can find show notes for this episode linked in the description along with all our references and resources mentioned today. If you enjoyed this episode, hit that subscribe button so you don't miss the next one. We will chat again soon. Bye. Bye.